Brother Anthony's message this morning is entitled Restoration Through Prayer. And in anticipation of that, I've been asked to read to you from Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Sushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of the brethren, came with me from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to my prayer, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Good morning, church. Boy, it's beautiful today. It's good to be with you. If you have been with us for a better part of this year, you've been taking the journey from the creation of the world, Genesis 1, the account of the beginning, all the way up until as we finish this year in just a few weeks, hard to believe, I know, uh, it's going to bring us to the birth of Jesus Christ. We've been trying to take a journey seeing the arc of the story of the Bible from creation to the coming Christ and see the Old Testament story of the historical redemption that God worked through His marvelous plan. And if you've been riding along with us for several weeks, uh, I would say for several months prior to this, it's been a pretty depressing season in Israel's history. Um, you probably could have maybe predicted what matter I were going to preach to you about um, for several months as we went through the prophets. You could go all the way back to the judges where God was faithful to His people. God's people weren't faithful to Him. God had to allow some discipline to come into their lives, and that discipline woke them up, and they returned for a short period of faithfulness. That was a pretty standard pattern uh, in a lot of our sermons for a long time. But in the last few weeks, we've had some success stories, some good news. We had stories like um, Ezra, where the temple was rebuilt after the exile. 
We had a story last week from Esther where God worked through the queen Esther, who was also a Jewish woman, to save the Jewish people, although they were living in uh, still the dispersion. Nehemiah is one of those people who has a great success story. So our story this morning um, has a lot of success in it, has a lot of greatness in it. And Nehemiah was a very important figure in the time in which Israel was coming back from the dispersion to return to Jerusalem to be God's people and reestablish their nation there. So Nehemiah uh, lived in the Persian Empire. He was working for the king. He was the cupbearer. Uh, drinking and tasting the drinks before the king would to make sure there was no assassination attempt. He was tied in closely to the government of the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah gets a report that his home nation, his home city, Jerusalem, his people are in great trouble and great shame. They have rebuilt the temple, but the city is still in shambles. So their inner workings as a nation, their, their, their culture, their environment, their economy is still in shambles. In fact, their defenses are down. The wall and all the gates have been burned and crushed and they're to the ground. And when he hears this report from his people have returned to tell him what's going on in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is heartbroken. He's crushed. He's stirred up inside of himself. And he doesn't know what to do at this point, but he's also frustrated. And so there's a lot of things that happen in the course of this story. But if you go quickly through it, you'll see that Nehemiah does return to Jerusalem. And it becomes the governor of that area, the leader of that area. And in just 52 short days, they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. It's an incredible success story. And as you look through this story of success where God is working through Ezra at the time and Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild God's people, there are a lot of external factors that line up in Nehemiah's life for this story to happen. One is Nehemiah has the right job. He's close to the king. He's in proximity to him every day. Nehemiah has the favor of the king. The king grants him favor to return to Jerusalem to do this job. Nehemiah has access to the king's funds and resources. The king gives him permission to not only go, but he funds the trip. And then he gives Nehemiah permission to get timber and lumber from his own wealth and resources from the kings to rebuild the gates of the wall. Then you see Nehemiah return to Jerusalem. And the people there have a mind to work, it says, meaning they want to get this wall rebuilt and they are excited to put their hands to the labor. Nehemiah also has a partner who is working with him. His name's Ezra, who is restoring the spiritual health of the people as Nehemiah is restoring the civil health of the people. So do you see all of these external things are lining up for Nehemiah to be able to do what he did in this short period of time in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But I want to suggest to you this morning, and here is the proposition we're going to make as we think about some scripture, that there is an underlying factor in the life of Nehemiah that brings about the success that he experienced in Jerusalem. There's an underlying factor in his life. There's an underpinning to what he does. And it's not the externals lining up but rather it's the internal being aligned. You see, Nehemiah's underpinning in his life is the practice of prayer. 
So, again, as I was saying before, the, the proposition I want to make to you this morning is this. That you and I may also, like Nehemiah, have external things lining up in our life. Good things. Things for us. But without prayer, there is no way that those dots will ever connect. Some of us live in, such, um, in our worlds where we feel like nothing ever really seems to be coming together for us. The externals never seem to be aligning. Things never seem to be working for us. May I suggest that Nehemiah was experiencing external alignment because he had internal alignment with prayer. Now, we've got to deal with the 800-pound gorilla. I said that, right? That's, that's how that phrase goes. The 800-pound gorilla in the room. When we start talking about prayer... Because every study that is done, whether it's the Pew Research Center in America, the Barna Group, these are all groups that study religious people. Yes, you and me. They, they, they call you know, American evangelicals and ask them religious questions to find out what kind of evangelical Christians they really are and stuff like that. And every research study done about prayer, here's what we all say. We stink at it. We're not good at it. We wish we did it better. You know, every research that's done out there say that many Christians do pray. About 78% of Christians say that they pray once a day. Um, about 15% say they pray once a week. And about 13% say they pray, or maybe it's about 9% say they pray once a month. But Christians say they pray. But when you ask Christians how they feel about their prayer life, how's it going? What do you think about the success of your prayer life? Is it good? Is it healthy? Is it vibrant? A vast majority of Christians will say, I wish I prayed better. I'm not that good at prayer. Prayer's hard. It's difficult. So, prayer is hard. It's difficult. We're not great at it. In fact, Jesus, his own disciples, came to him and said, Hey, Lord, will you teach us to pray? They needed help learning how to pray. Paul said to the church in Corinth, he asked them, Will you please labor with me in prayer? You see, prayer is difficult. Prayer is hard. Prayer is labor. And in our experience-driven culture, where we like to do things that give us immediate response of experience, that that was good. That's how we live in our world today. That I want to do something now, and I want to experience the response of it being good. Prayer oftentimes gets pushed to the side because, spoiler alert, very few times will you pray and have this overwhelming spiritual euphoria. Prayer, the Bible presents it, is a discipline and a labor. It's work. It's hard. And we've got to be about the work. And so we're going to learn from Nehemiah a couple things about prayer that I hope will be able to help you in your prayer life today. Um, we're going to learn a couple things. First of all, we're going to see the rhythm of prayer that Nehemiah had in his life. Nehemiah had a rhythm of prayer. I want to help you with that this morning. Nehemiah had the right content in his prayer, and he had confidence in prayer. Let's get started with the rhythm. Uh, you notice the reading that Gene read. Um, it was a longer one. We read all 11 verses of the first chapter. Starting in verse 4 is when Nehemiah prays. And in chapter 1, he has a long prayer. Verses 4 through about verse 11. And it says that he was praying in the month of Chislev. Uh, so, you know, just keep that in mind. I'll tell you why that matters here in a few moments. And Nehemiah is weeping and fasting and praying. What I'm going to call this is block time of prayer. 
Nehemiah was finding time where he was doing nothing else except drawing away to his own quarters, like Jesus would say, into his inner room. And he was finding space and carving it out and praying for chunks of time. He was taking a block of time in his life and doing nothing else other than pouring his heart out to God, reflecting and praying. This is a block of prayer, time set aside. And that's an important part of our prayer life. You and I need to have chunks of time where we block out everything else that we're doing, where we stop everything else we're doing, we find quiet time, and we pray. But look in chapter 2. In chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, this is in the month of Nisan. Uh, Why this matters is because Nehemiah receives the news about Jerusalem in Chislev, which is four months earlier than the month of Nisan. Okay, So for four months, Nehemiah is weeping and fasting and praying over and over about what's bothering him, what's going on in Jerusalem. And now, four months later, there uh, we have um, Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I, now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah saying this. I said to the king, Oh, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now pay attention to what he says, verse 4. The king said to me, What are you requesting? Four months, Nehemiah has been praying in blocks of prayer, time alone with God. God, my heart is broken for your people, for my city, for our city. This is not right. Four months. And there he's got a sad countenance in front of the king. And he says, the king says, why are you sad? How long has Nehemiah been sad? For a good period of time. The king finally notices. And when the king says, hey, why are you sad? Nehemiah goes, ugh. He gets kind of afraid. You've been learning a little bit about Esther. When Esther approached the king, she could have been killed immediately for displeasing the king, for coming in unannounced. And the same was true for Nehemiah. If he displeased the king, if his countenance being sad would have offended the king, they would have chopped his head off that afternoon. And so he's sad, and the king says, Why are you sad? And Nehemiah is there, and he responds, Why should I not be sad? My father's city, the city of my God, lies in ruins. And the king says, what do you want? What are you asking? Now look what Nehemiah does in verse 4. It says, so what are you requesting? The king said to me. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. How much time do you think elapsed in that moment there? Standing in front of the king, he can chop my head off probably right now if he feels like it. And I'm scared to death and he says, what do you want? And and Nehemiah says, I prayed to God and I said to the king that I may go back and rebuild. How much time do you think was in that space there for Nehemiah? Split second? An instant? A moment? You see, Nehemiah had a rhythm in his prayer life. He had both the chunks of time where he was alone with God praying, and he had the momentary quick shots of prayer. The moment, Lord, be with me. Lord, give me mercy. Lord, please help me. Give me wisdom. 
Remember what I was praying about before? Help me with that right now. In the moment, praying about that. And that's the rhythm I want to introduce to you when it comes to having a healthy life of prayer. You see, we need both of these rhythms to really have a key relationship with God. Any important relationship in your life needs both of these types of communication. What I want you to do is consider for a moment the really important relationships in your life. Uh, maybe the one you have with your parents, uh, your spouse, if you have children. Um, think about very close friends that are important to you. Just consider for a moment if all you had was one type of communication and not the other. Let's say all you had were the big chunks of time. So once a week or once a month or maybe uh, you know once every 30 or 40 days, you could sit down with this person and talk for three or four hours and really talk. But then you wouldn't see them for maybe a month or two or three months. That's all you got. How healthy and vibrant would that relationship be day to day? We would enjoy the chunks of time, but day to day we would not be on the same page. Now take for a moment the other side of it. Let's say you never really sat down with a person to talk to them about what's on their mind, what's on your mind, what's going on in your lives. You never really took a block of time to spend with them, but all you did was send quick texts every other day. Hey, what's up? You good? Yeah, great. Sounds great. And that's all you did. You might have a rhythm of being connected to that person every day, but you wouldn't have a shared mind, would you? You see, both of these things are key in relationship. If you do one or the other, the relationship will not flourish. We must do both because the rhythm of this, both the blocks of prayer and the quick prayers, mold separate wills into one will, separate minds into one mind, separate lives into one life. Just think about these important relationships where you take time to talk about serious, important things that you've got to do in your life, but you also, in between those times, are checking in constantly. When people do that, when they spend that kind of time together, they go from being two people to being one. A shared will. So what should you do if this is a rhythm challenge for you? Because I, I, I'm almost certain that if I did a poll right now and said, how many of you are really good at blocks of prayer? but not good at the quick prayer. Some of you would raise your hand and say, that's me. I'm great at finding blocks of time, being disciplined, praying to God, but the rest of the day I can, what was I praying about this morning? I don't know. As you go through the rest of your day, you're dialed in and focused, but you kind of forget the block of prayer. And then some of you might say, to find 30 minutes to stop doing anything but pray is hard for me. But all day, I'm God, Lord, be with me. Give me mercy. Help me with this. What should I do about that? Some of you are good at that. So what should you do? Let me give you a just quick uh, thought to think about. If you are not good at the blocks of prayer, I want to encourage you to start small. No one walks into a gym if they haven't worked out for a few years and starts you know, lifting weights for three hours and all the, finding all the stuff they can do because guess what that person will do? Not come back. <laughs> if they walk in there saying, you know, I'm going to be an Olympian today and I'm going to lift all these weights and get super strong and I'm going to spend four hours in here and I'm going to change my life today. And then like Tuesday, they just stop coming because they're too sore. Start small, but start disciplined. Tell yourself five minutes every day. I will find five minutes where I will not pick up my phone, where I will back away from any computer, no checking email, where I will find space away from people and I will dedicate five good minutes to talk to God. Do that. Build some success and watch that five minutes turn into ten. 
and 15. And watch yourself set your alarm for 40 minutes early because you adore spending time with God. Watch it happen. But if you say tomorrow, man, I just really struggle with blocks of prayer. I usually get up at 7. I'm getting up at 5.30. I'm going to get coffee in the coffee maker this morning or at night. I'm going to set the timer and I'm going to be ready. I'm getting my journal out. It's leather bound. I'm going to Barnes & Noble and I'm getting a new Bible. And tomorrow I'm spending an hour in prayer. You might do it tomorrow, but you won't do it on Thursday. Five minutes. Watch it turn into 10, 15, 30, 40. It will grow and you'll become hungry for God. Now, if you're not good at the quick prayers, let's say you're really good at praying in the morning and establishing your day, but the quick prayers, set some reminders for yourself. Keep a notebook that you keep with you, that, that your, your important prayers are in there. And as you have that, you'll be reminded as things come up in your life to pray about those things. Do something. Ask God in, in your block prayer for help with that so that we can grow in this rhythm of prayer. But the second question is very important. Not only do we have a rhythm of prayer, but what should we be praying about? What's important to us that we should pray about? Many people struggle with this. In fact, a lot of people I talk to say that they would pray more if they really felt that they knew what to pray actually about. Well, look at Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. In chapter 1, there's several things that he does. In verse 5, Nehemiah has adoration for God. In verse 6, he has a humble petition that God would listen to him. In verses half of 6 and all of 7, Nehemiah practices confession, both personally and corporately. Verse 8 and 9, Nehemiah reiterates and trusts the promises that God has made to him and his people. In verse 10, Nehemiah has gratitude and honor for God, for what God has done. And in verse 11, Nehemiah asks for the empowerment in action. So what we could do is tell you that's a model of prayer. So you should... Take the outline of Nehemiah and fill in your own content underneath that outline and go pray. But that's actually not what I'm going to suggest that you should do. That's what Nehemiah prayed. That's how Nehemiah prayed. And that's a good prayer and you should study it. But here's what I would suggest. If you look in each of those sections that I just told you about, in every one of them, there's a common theme running through them in his adoration or his petition, in his confession, in looking at the promises, in his gratitude, and in the empowerment, there's one common theme going through all of his prayer, and that it is driven by Scripture. In fact, in verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah quotes the Bible, Scripture, directly. That's what he prays. God, you said this to Moses, and he says it. God, you promised this if we would return, and he says it. You see, if Scripture... Let me back up and say this, that Timothy Keller uh, in his book on prayer said this, that prayer is a response to the conversation God has already started with us in His Word. That's what prayer is. You see, if Scripture is not driving the content of your prayer life, you will do two things. If Scripture isn't driving what you pray, you'll do two things. The first thing you'll do is you will create your own will, what you think you want out of life. So you'll create your own will and you'll pray for that. And the second thing, if Scripture isn't driving your prayer, you'll not only create your own will, but you'll create your own God. He will be a figment of your imagination because you won't know anything about the nature of who God really is, and so you'll just create your own God. If you don't have Scripture driving your, your prayer life, you will pray for what you think you want, and you will pray for to who you think God is. 
And most of the time, it's a figment of our imagination. Usually some genie in a bottle. Henry Nguyen, in his book on uh, the spiritual life called Reaching Out, said this. And as he brought it down to a conclusion about how we interact with God, he said this in the spiritual life, that there are only two ways that you live in life. You either live in illusion or you live in prayer. If you're not living in prayer, he says you're living under the illusion that you either control your life or you know what's best or you've got this thing figured out. That's your illusion that you're living in. He says when you wake up to that illusion, you then begin to pray. It's only those two options. Scripture is us listening to God, knowing who He is, what He has done, and telling us who we are and what we're to do. It drives our prayer. Prayer is a response to that conversation God has started. And I've said this to several times, but I believe converting Scripture into personal prayer will dramatically change your prayer life. If you don't know what to pray about tomorrow morning, find a small passage in the Bible, read it until you understand it, and then take every sentence in that Scripture and convert it to a personal prayer. And you'll spend 30 or 40 minutes with God, and it'll be great for you. You see, when we do this, it will take your prayers from being personal shopping lists into corporate concerns for the world and for our church and for your family. It will take your prayer from being just expressing frustration about what's not going right in your life to awareness and confession of your own sin. It will take prayer from begging for God to give you what you want to you finally calling on God to make His promises come true in your lifetime because you've seen what He's promised. It will take your prayer from being greedy to having gratitude. It will take your prayer from being fearful, please fix my life, God, to confident, bold empowerment. God, I want your promises to be true in my life. Scripture drives that kind of prayer. And if you're not in Scripture, you're praying your own will to your own God. And it will never work. The last thing about Nehemiah that we see is that he's confident in prayer. You see, when our hearts are broken, I mean like not teeny bopper love stuff, but like real deep crushed life, or when we're in the heat of the moment like Nehemiah was in chapter 2, you and I turn to what we trust. We turn to the person or the thing that we trust in when we're crushed. Nehemiah turned to prayer, and the question is why? You see, I think Nehemiah knew that Persistent prayer guaranteed that he would participate in God's will. Nehemiah knew that persistent, consistent, driven prayer would guarantee that he would be involved in whatever it may be, but it would be involved in God's will. You see, oftentimes I think we don't pray because we either don't trust that to be true, that if we pray we're really going to participate in God's will, that God's real will will take place And I'll participate in that. We either don't trust that, or we're not sure we really want that yet. You see, I think that's what really stops us from praying, is that we either don't trust that it's really going to take place, or we're not 100% certain that we really want to give up our own will. The posture of prayer is submission, not commission. The posture of prayer is not demanding, but it's open-ended. You see, oftentimes in prayer, as we see in Scripture, says, Thy will be done. If our mind is set on, what, on both what we want and how we should get it, 
you and I will run out of steam in praying. What we'll be doing is we'll be waiting for a genie to answer our wish, and when genies don't answer our wish, we stop going to that genie. If we've already made our minds up about how we want our life to go and exactly what we want it to be and how exactly it should happen, and that's all we talk about to God, God, fix this, fix this, fix this, you will run out of steam in your prayer life because the genie is not fixing your wish. And you'll eventually lose your joy and you'll turn to other things and not to prayer. Nehemiah knew what I want all of us to not just intellectually say to each other in church, but to really believe in our fiber. He knew that God's will was the very best will for him. That God's will is the best will for us. He knew that, and he knew that prayer is the only pathway into that will. And the question is then, as we close, how do we know that God's will for the world, for life, for you, how do you know that God's will is the best will for you, and that you and I should pray open-endedly for God's will to happen and for us to be willing to walk in that way. How do you know that it's the best for you? And let go of that fearful clinging that we have to our own desires, our own wants, our own way. How do we know that? In fact, we've seen many people experience pain and suffering and trial when they've trusted in God's will. How can we know that it's the very best for us? I can know for certain, I can tell you today, that it's proven, guaranteed proven. We've seen it proven in the most extreme case in Jesus Christ. That man lived in constant prayer, both in blocks of time where he would wake up early in the morning or stay out late at night away from everybody to pray And he would constantly quick prayer all the time. When he was standing at Lazarus' tomb, he would say, Father, let this be right and let people see your glory. He was doing both of those. And that man walked in unshakable peace, unshakable joy, unshakable confidence in God's will. Most notably, we see this in the garden. And it was at that moment that Jesus' desire for God's will was being incredibly challenged. But his prayer was still submissive. Not mine, but your will be done. And in light of that prayer, Jesus experienced unimaginable suffering because of it. So how can that be good? God, let your will be done. I trust it. Jesus experiences unimaginable suffering. How can that be good? Two Bible verses for you to think about. Isaiah 53 in prophecy of Jesus' life says this. Out of the anguish of His, Jesus' soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, that man will be satisfied. Hebrews 12, 2, in reflection of the life of Jesus, says this, Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ came to the garden wanting joy and satisfaction, but he didn't want the cross. Yet he trusted in God's will to bring him joy and satisfaction. Prayer did not remove the cross from Jesus' life. Prayer strengthened Jesus to walk face first into the cross and through it. And he was on his way to what his heart, and I would suggest our heart, ultimately wants. The deepest satisfaction and the ultimate joy. That's how you can know that prayer for God's will, even in suffering, will be good. Because what brought Jesus joy? 
You see, Jesus at that moment in the garden could not have turned his back. He couldn't have left. In fact, he could have called, as it says, the 12,000 angels, right? The 12 legions of angels. He could have went back and just dissolved back into heaven and left this earth and not gone through with it. He could have done that. But if he would have done that, even though his heart was not wanting the cross at that moment for what he knew it was coming, even if he would have left before the cross, he would not have had satisfaction and joy. He would have lost it. What was his joy? He would have missed his greatest joy. What was it? His opportunity to be reconnected to you. His prayer for God's will led him through suffering, but brought him his greatest joy. A people that could finally have their sins removed so that a relationship with the Father, the favor of their Creator could be back and they could enjoy life with Him as they were always designed to live it. You see, Jesus in that garden, prayed, God, not my will, but yours be done, because the will of God is that you be reconnected to Him. And it was accomplished through the cross of Jesus. And that brought Him satisfaction and joy. And if you're on the outside of that, you're missing satisfaction and joy. We're here to give that to you and to help you. Let's stand and sing.